Hello, Electorate listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner. I wanted to try something different for once in this episode. I wanted to take a moment to celebrate our midterm victories. So I'm doing my first solo episode. It's just me. But not to worry, I have plenty of guest interviews in the queue with some amazing women. And that will, of course, remain my core focus for the electorate. And, you know, I'd love your feedback. So please visit electorate on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate and leave a comment in the post about this episode. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, grab them by the midterms. Isn't that nice? You know, I'm in a pretty good mood right about now. Not only have Democrats won the House, this is the first time in the history of Congress that more than 100 women were projected to win seats in the House of Representatives. That's a big deal. Women have never held more than 84 seats out of the 435 seats in the House. Crazy. And Congress has been around for over 200 years. It's been two centuries. You know, so I think it's fair to call this a pink wave. You know, that's really what I want to explore in this episode. You know, who are these women? What makes this freshman crop of women a force to be reckoned with? You know, they're different. These aren't your everyday candidates. These aren't your everyday politicians. These women are fighters and they're outraged. They're going to bring passion to the job from their own personal experiences. You know, these women, they aren't going to DC to play. You know, I'm going to go through some of their backstories. I'm not going to go through all of the women, but some of the women that you may have heard of and some stories about them that you may or may not be familiar with but I'm certain that their stories are going to inspire you like they did me. I was in awe of some of the things that they lived through. You know, they've lived incredible lives, they've taken big, big risks to get here, and they represent us. They've earned their seats at the table. These women are going to DC, and I know in my heart that these women are going to light that town up like it's never been lit before. So let's meet a few of them, shall we? I am Rashida Tlaib, and I grew up in the blackest city in the country. And I grew up with teachers that told me about communities where they couldn't live, about lines they couldn't get in line in, and that job they couldn't get because of the color of their skin. Those are the roots. Those teachers, those mentors are in me. As a Palestinian brown girl from Southwest Detroit, where I grew up with 20 different ethnicities. That is the beauty of this country, what it can be. Did you hear the fire in her voice? That was Rashida Tlaib, and she is heading to Congress. Rashida Tlaib is from a working-class immigrant family from Detroit. And that clip is actually from the She the People Summit in San Francisco that happened a couple of months ago. I actually heard her speak there, and she was a powerhouse. She brought the house down. And when I heard her voice on stage and I thought, man, that voice is going to be in Congress. I want her fighting for me. Rashida Tlaib grew up in Detroit in a predominantly black community. She said that she was influenced by this experience and that, you know, many of the black residents in her community in Detroit, you know, they had lived through the civil rights movement and had experienced racism. And she was influenced by that. So she really understands civil rights. She really understands what it means to fight. And she also understands what it means to be an immigrant. You know, these intersections of her personality are really going to shape the way she sees her position and her role in Congress. But one of my favorite stories about Rashida Tlaib was a moment in 2016 at the Detroit Economic Club. Trump was there giving a speech. 
there were these women in the audience who were repeatedly shouting, trying to get Trump to, to speak out on his stance on sexual harassment. And Rashida Tlaib was one of those women. You know, and of course, this is Trump. He's not going to answer that question. He's not going to answer what his stance is on sexual harassment. I mean, honestly, we all know his stance. Because, you know, what did he say? He said, when you're a star, you know, they just let you do it. You can do anything. You can do anything. That is Trump's stance on sexual harassment and on sexual assault. So anyway, so back to this moment. And there's a videotape of this, and I'll, I'll put a link to this videotape in the show notes. So at that moment, Rashida Tlaib, she, you know, she was shouting, and she shouted from the audience, have you ever read the U.S. Constitution? She called President Trump out from the audience. And then shortly after that, she was dragged out of the audience by security. And this video is really incredible. As security's dragging her out, she's still chanting and asking questions, and she's not backing down. And her body language is so fiery and, and passionate. In this video, she's kind of jumping up and down, and she's making sure that her questions are heard. At the same time, she's being dragged up by security. You know, she's unafraid, and she's unbothered. In a later interview, someone asked her about this moment, and you know what she said? Rashida Tlaib said, I'm going to bring my bullhorn to the floor of Congress. Rashida Tlaib is going to Congress to fight for us. There are any number of ways that this interaction might have gone. But there was only one way it could have ended once a gun entered the equation. In Florida, over one million people carry concealed weapons. Additionally, 10 to 15,000 more Floridians are approved to carry guns in public every month faster than any state in the nation. Nationally, Florida has some of the loosest permitting requirements. Automobile glove boxes are becoming modern-day gun boxes. In his glove box, Michael Dunn kept a 9mm semi-automatic gun along with two loaded magazines. Once he had unloaded his gun at my son and his teenage friends, he immediately went back to his hotel, ordered a pizza, and slept. That was Lucy McBath testifying in a 2017 Senate hearing against the Stand Your Ground laws. She won in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, and you may have heard of Lucy McBath. She was inspired to run for office after losing her son, Jordan Davis, to gun violence. Her 17-year-old son was murdered in Florida following an argument over loud music. And ever since then, Lucy McBath has been there for the fight. You know, here's another thing that you may not know about Lucy McBath. She survived breast cancer twice. You know, the most heartbreaking thing about Lucy McBath's story is that her son, Jordan Davis, wasn't supposed to be in Florida. He was there while McBath was recovering from a second belt of breast cancer. And although both Florida and Georgia have stand your ground laws, this happening in Florida is so sadly fitting. You know, given Florida's history with stand your ground laws, with Trayvon Martin's case, of course, there have been other high profile cases. The man who killed Lucy McBath's son actually cited the stand your ground law in his defense. And Lucy McBath, of course, has been really outspoken about stand your ground laws and gun control generally. I read an interview between Lucy McBath and ta Coates in The Atlantic where she said, you know, I still love my country. 
It's the only country we have. And I still believe that there are people who believe in justice and fairness. I still believe that there are people who don't make judgments about people based on the color of their skin. The thing that I think is so important about Lucy Macbeth's win is the fact that, you know, week over week, we're stunned at the new levels of gun violence in this country. And it's something that's plagued us. Lucy Macbeth campaigned against the Sandra Ground laws, and she was also the national spokesperson for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. And in the state of Florida, where her son was killed, at least 26 children and teens were killed in cases related to Stand Your Ground laws between 2005 and 2012. There are 25 states that still have Stand Your Ground laws, including Georgia, where Lucy McBath is from and where she won her congressional seat, and Florida. But I want you to think about this timeline, this timeline leading up to Lucy McBath's candidacy. So her son, Jordan Davis, was shot and killed in November of 2012. Sandy Hook happened in December of the same year, December of 2012. A day after Sandy Hook, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America was founded on December 15, 2012. That was just one day after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. In 2014, Lucy McBath became the national spokesperson for Moms Demand Action. And following the Parkland shooting in February of this year, Lucy McBath announced her run for Congress. So that timeline's really inspiring. You can see how the Sandy Hook shooting, the death of her son, and her being a spokesperson and an activist for Moms Demand Action all led up to this moment. So there's no better person and no better advocate to be in this fight against gun violence. So I'm really hopeful to see what Lucy McBath brings to Congress. You know, I really wanted to talk about gun control because I think that, you know, a lot of people are talking about the midterm elections in the context of committees and especially the investigative committees, right? Maxine Waters, you know, she'll be the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. And of course, that could mean that they could subpoena Trump's financial records, you know, and I'm looking forward to that just as much as the next person. You know, it's like Christmas is coming, you know, but for me, more importantly, are the lives that gun violence touches, especially the lives of children and innocent people who are touched by gun violence every day. You know, and I'm really looking forward to see what direction Congress goes with these new members who are gun control advocates. Gun control, for instance, if you look at the congressional archives, you'll see that after Sandy Hook, there have been at least two dozen bills that have failed. But you know what? Things are changing and they're changing fast. The 2018 midterm elections marked the first time that gun control advocates outspent the NRA. This was the first time. So think about that in comparison to previous years' spending. So during the 2014 midterms, the NRA spent $25 million to influence congressional races. And in 2016, they spent $55 million to influence the election. And $30 million went to Trump's election. But you know, the fact that gun control groups outspent the NRA for this election really paid off. About 61% of voters participating in the midterms said that American gun laws should be stricter. Democrats ousted at least 15 House Republicans that had A ratings from the NRA. And the Democratic candidates that won, the candidates that flipped those Republican seats, they all scored an F rating. And they ran on that. They were proud to have an F rating from the NRA. And you know why that's so important? Our Democratic candidates are going to make it so shameful to have a favorable rating from the NRA that you won't be able to win a race with anything higher than an F rating. But, you know, Lucy McBath is just one candidate that ran on gun control. There was a record number of ads. I think there's something around 125,000 ads, political ads for midterms for House seats, Senate seats and gubernatorial races that made gun control central to their messaging. 
and at least 17 newly elected House Democrats back stricter gun laws. And that includes Jennifer Wexton of North Virginia, Abigail Spenberger of New Jersey, and Elaine Luria of Virginia. Abigail Spenberger is interesting. She's a former CIA operative, and she was backed by the Gabby Giffords Organization Against Gun Violence for her stance on tougher gun laws. She's even talked about having to carry a gun every day for her job. So she understands what it means to be a responsible gun owner. And Jennifer Wexton of North Virginia? As a senator, she voted for bills that would establish universal background checks, enclosed gun show loopholes, and ban bump stocks. And Lane Luria of Virginia? She's a Navy veteran. She spent 20 years in the Navy. She was deployed six times. She just retired from the Navy in June of 2017, and she was also endorsed by Gabby Giffords. So all three of these women, in addition to Lucy McBath, made gun control a central theme of their campaigns. Now, I don't want to imply that we're out of the woods here, right? There still needs to be support from the Senate, where the Democrats don't have the majority, and of course, from the executive branch, which has proven to be pretty useless in standing up to the NRA. But the tide is turning. This could be the beginning of the end of the NRA's influence over politics, and of course, the end of this deadly gun culture here in this country. Another woman who made history this year is Sharice Davids of Kansas. The world was first introduced to Sharice Davids in her powerful campaign ad. She's she's in this boxing ring, right? And she's throwing these punches at this punching bag. She's wearing a t-shirt that says, strong, resilient, and indigenous. And you know, when I saw this, I thought, you know, who is this person? Who is this woman? Well, now I know. Sharice Davids is, or she was rather, an MMA fighter. She's also the first openly LGBTQ Kansan and one of the first two Native American women elected to Congress. And, and she was also raised by a single mom. Are you seeing the pattern here? These women aren't from privileged backgrounds. Earlier this year, Sharice Davids was actually arrested for protesting at the Capitol on behalf of Dreamers. And on Twitter, she said of her arrest, you know, I'm proud that I was arrested fighting for Dreamers. I'm proud of everyone who takes a stand and works to amplify their voices. You know, Sharice Davids, is a fighter, both literally and figuratively, and we're sending her to the house. Deb Holland, of course, of New Mexico, who also won her congressional race, is making history as one of two Native American women going to the house, along with Sharice Davids. She has a strong stance on climate change, and she's driven in part by the fact that New Mexico has been plagued by severe drought. 13 of the 20 most water-poor counties in the U.S. are majority Native. You know, when I think about both Deb Holland and Sharice Davids, I'm reminded of the attempts at voter suppression in Native communities during the midterms. Remember that in North Dakota? So their representation in Congress matters for, you know, this really important reason. And for the simple fact that, you know, frankly, it's been 200 years, people. Congress. 
Muslim women elected to Congress. That was Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar is one of two of the first Muslim women to be elected to the House of Representatives, along with Rashida Tlaib. So I really want you to take a moment to absorb Ilhan Omar's backstory. Her family fled the civil war in Somalia. And at age eight, she spent the next four years in a refugee camp in Kenya. Then at age 12, in 1995, she moved to the U.S., where she spoke no English. You know, I wonder if that eight-year-old girl, as she fled her home country, a country, by the way, that's currently on the U.S. travel ban list, I wonder if she could have imagined herself making history as the first woman to wear a hijab in the U.S. House of Representatives, the first Somali-American legislator, and one of the first Muslim women in the House of Representatives. When I think about Omar walking into that chamber, I'm so moved. I'm so, so moved. And I'm proud. So there was this really interesting study that was done. It showed that women in Congress pass, on average, twice as many bills as their male colleagues. Women legislators sponsor more bills, they pass more laws, and they also send more money to their districts. And women legislators are more likely to introduce legislation that specifically benefits women. And to put it bluntly, they just get stuff done. And I'll put a link to that study in the show notes. You know, there's this concept called the Jill Robinson effect. And it's a phrase that's based on Jackie Robinson, you know, the first black baseball player, you know, who was one of the top talents in the game. You know, Jackie Robinson had to be better than any, almost any white player in order to to overcome all the racism. So basically, the Jill Robinson effect, which is introduced by Sarah Enzia, she's a researcher from Stanford. The Jill Robinson effect explains why congresswomen outperform congressmen. And her study says that, you know, if voters are biased against female candidates, only the most talented, hardest working women will succeed in the electoral process. And also, if women perceive that that there's going to be discrimination in the electoral process, or if they underestimate their own qualifications for office relative to the men who are running, then only the most qualified and politically ambitious women will emerge as candidates. It's a really, really interesting study, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You know, and actually, maybe I'll have Sarah and Zia on as a guest to talk about it further. You know, so with all of that said, with over 100 women going to Congress, we have over 100 reasons to be really, really hopeful. And that's a lot of fighters. And of course, you know, I have to talk about Ayanna Presley, another woman who made history this year. She's the first black woman, the first woman of color from Massachusetts to serve in the House of Representatives. But, you know, that wasn't her only first. She was also the first black woman elected to the Boston City Council. And in this past race during the midterms, she unseated her incumbent, Michael Capuano, who'd served 10 terms. Another important thing about Ayanna Presley is that she's talked in the past about being a survivor of sexual assault while she was in college. And I think that's really important for the fact that one of the criticisms that we've heard about, you know, the Me Too movement and feminism around, you know, sexual assault is that it hasn't been fully inclusive. You know, although the Me Too movement was initially launched by Toronto Burke, who's also a Black woman, you know, following that, one of the criticisms is that it has not been inclusive to the experiences of women of color. 
So I think that someone at Ayanna Presley's level with her visibility and her leadership, it's really important that she's being open about this. And I think that's really admirable. Now, I don't think that women are required to do this, right? I think that, you know, having women wear their pain on their sleeves or share their personal experiences so publicly, it should not be a requirement, you know, but I think that when it is done, especially by a black woman, especially by a woman of color, a woman whose election is historic, you know, I think that that's valuable beyond words. And I, for one, appreciate it. One of the things that I admire most about Ayanna Presley is, you know, how unapologetically progressive she is. I mean, all of the women that I've talked about are progressive, right? But she talks about issues that I haven't heard many leaders at her level discuss. For instance, she's talked about the decriminalization and legalization of marijuana. And, you know, as that spreads across the country, she's talked about the need to make sure that minorities are included in, you know, profits from that industry. And that isn't something that I've heard often from leaders at her level. You know, I think that because of her focus and because of her experiences and her empathy, I think that she's going to bring something very special to the House of Representatives. When I imagine Ayanna Presley, you know, in her braids, her beautiful braids, and Ilhan Omar in her hijab on the floor of the house, and I'm really moved. All of the intersecting identities that these women bring together, you know, I find it really beautiful and moving. And I'm really looking forward to this new Congress. You know, when I think about this beautiful coalition of women, the new members, the veterans, and all of their strengths coming together, I'm just beside myself with excitement. You know, they're going to disagree at times. You know, their views and their, their styles won't always align, and they're going to fight in different ways. You know, but I think it would be really healthy for us as a party to move to a place where we're all fine with that. I mean, what else can we do? You know, but I've seen these women and I've seen what they can do and I've seen them in action and I know that we are in the best hands. So the point I wanted to make with this episode, it's not just about having a majority in the House, although that's important. It's about who's in that majority. The historic number of women, you know, these women have personal experience with gun violence, with the pain and struggle of being a refugee. You know, they have personal ties to immigration, Native American, Muslim, Black, lesbian, veterans. The intersection of these identities of these women going to the House of Representatives is so powerful. So, so powerful. So here are their names. Lucy McBath, Abigail Spanberger, Jennifer Wexton, Elaine Luria, Sharice Davids, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Deb Holland, and there's so many more. You know, remember those names because I have a feeling you're going to hear a lot from them. I believe they're going to transform the country. By the way, if this episode feels incomplete, I agree. I want to do another segment on women of color, both those who've been elected and also about the electorate. You know, how women of color voted in this past election. When I think about this collection of women, I can barely contain my excitement. I'm so excited to see where we're going. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. Hit your subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. When you click subscribe, that's one of the most valuable things you can do for a podcast. And also, I want to hear from you. I want to hear your input and what you think about the shows. I'll put up a survey on our Facebook page. You can go there and let me know what you think. It's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.